Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The man who runs the Brookfield Zoo is retiring. But first, he's got to steer the sprawling institution through one of the more challenging times in its history. This week, it's a conversation with Stuart Strahl. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest is conservationist Stuart Strahl. He's the president and CEO of the Chicago Zoological Society. That's the nonprofit group that runs Brookfield Zoo. He has had the job for 17 years. Before that, he was a founder and president of Audubon of Florida and a leader of the National Audubon Society. He's also been a ranking official with the Wildlife Conservation Society. Here at Brookfield, he's forged international partnerships, built new habitats, and strengthened the zoo's financial position. Well, we're going to talk about the legacy he'll leave behind, the future of the zoo, and the challenges facing all zoos in an online age during this half hour. And we are recording this at the zoo, observing an appropriately uh, safe social distance here because of coronavirus. Stuart Strahl, thank you very much for having me here. Oh, well, thanks for thanks for coming out. We really appreciate it. Well, we're talking in a zoo that is uh, closed right now, and this is a zoo that's normally open uh, every day of the week, all year round. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly uh, been a blow to many sure things that we count on this year. So how are you and the zoo coping? Uh, We've been uh, working on this, of course, before it became a national emergency, before it became an emergency for the state. Uh, We saw this coming having a whole bunch of biologists and a whole lot of people who are have been tracking it. Uh, this is a zoonotic disease passed from animals to people. And uh, like many zoonotic diseases that uh, out there, it's uh, easily spread. Uh, and so we have a we have a big uh, a big group of people who work with primates where we have to worry about zoonotic diseases. And so this one is something we took very seriously from the start. Mm. Um, and at first, you were you were hoping to keep at least the grounds open. How how did that go? Because now it's 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 shut down. Yeah. Well, we uh, our our first our first pass at this was okay. Uh, anything in closed spaces, enclosed spaces, when it was uh, any group larger than two hundred and fifty, and then it got to any group larger than a hundred, we closed down all the interior spaces, and uh, only the public restrooms were open. So. We thought we'd give people an opportunity to wander around the park in the open air and see our outdoor exhibits. Um, 
But then within a week, we, we closed the whole zoo down. And how long is the zoo planning to stay closed? And I use that word guardedly. Well, there's a there's always a question when we when we want to use language, but I, I think the uh, what we said was we'd be closed till April 30th. Uh, it really is until further notice. Uh, I think uh, this is a this is a pandemic that's uh, severe. We haven't seen the peak uh, here in Illinois, and we can see what it's doing to major metropolitan areas around the country. So, so we're cautiously optimistic that we'll have some kind of season this summer. We're just not sure when. And and I would assume it takes almost as much work to uh, to maintain a closed zoo as it does to maintain one that's open. Can you talk a little bit about what's still going on here? Sure. Our, our, uh, uh, the animals are our number one uh, issue. So all of our uh, animal keepers are still coming in and doing their rounds with their charges. Uh, you may know that animal keepers are not really a profession; it's a calling. It's it's very much a uh, individual keeper working with their animals, and so we're giving the best care that we that we always give, uh, and all of our veterinary staff is in. Uh, we also have our plant facilities people. We have our uh, custodial who are still cleaning uh, with industrial strain cleaners all over the zoo, uh, and uh, a few. Uh, a few of us uh, scalawags from management come in, and uh, every morning for the last uh, month and a half, we have had all of our, uh, most of our senior managers on the phone in the morning at 8 o'clock for an hour or two, and then a check-in with the executive team later in the day. Now, when I've looked around uh, uh, the, the, at stuff from around the country, uh, some zoos have increased their online presence uh, during these closures. Uh, What's going on (laughs) that people can uh, still connect with the uh, with the Brookfield Zoo? Uh, We have we have quite a few things that we push out every day uh, through Facebook and through other means. Kind of like a shed at the shed aquarium with the rock hopper penguins exploring the entire aquarium which is kind of fun. Uh, We have stories about different animals and uh, we always have something going on here. Hmm. Now as these closures start to affect the, the zoos, and I, I know there are probably a number of sources of, of, of revenue and, and, and philanthropy that may keep the uh, zoological society and the zoos going, but this has got to be a, a, a drain on resources. What can Brookfield Zoo do, and maybe in con- concert or alone, with uh, to keep things going and to keep the uh, facility, the, the, the mission, strong? Uh, well, we, we have uh, 115,000 member families. Um, that's one of the mo- things I'm most proud of since coming here. Uh, we found, of course, that, uh, that uh, members come every uh, other day. Some of them come 50 times a year. Some of them come two or three times a year. But they certainly come more than our paying uh, pay-at-the-gate customers. And so uh, we are every day pushing out information to them. We have online uh, campaigns going right now. Uh, we canceled our whirl, our big black tie gala for the year, uh, but most of the donors who had given to that are uh, going to stand by their pledges uh, for us. Mm. But it's, it's deeper than that, of course. Uh, about a half of our revenue comes from either uh, gate attendance, uh, 
which is actually second or third to uh, members and free attendance. We do a lot of free passes, half a million of them around the region. And then, of course, uh, sales, merchandise, uh, food, and catered event sales. And last year, all those numbers, when you net them out, were about half of our annual revenue. And in the summer, we get, uh, from May to September, we get about uh, 70% of our guests. So you right about now is when things are gearing up for us as an outdoor attraction. Uh, and, uh, and it's tough to come up with that kind of money from other sources right now. And and I know uh, this is a tough time for the zoo. You've you've seen this zoo and and this organization go through some some tough times. Um, but I want to take us back a little bit for for a bit and talk a little bit about your tenure here. I mean, how does someone whose whose original interest was birds uh, <laughs> end up uh, running an entire animal kingdom? <laughs> <laughs> birds in South America uh, to boot. So. I did my dissertation and postdoc work down in South America and was hired by the Wildlife Conservation Society to be a regional uh, zoologist. Uh, And I grew those programs in Latin America, mostly in the Andean countries, um, into an international program for first northern South America. And then they moved me back to New York from Venezuela, where I spent eight years before that, uh, almost ten years doing research. Uh, to New York, and I was the director of Latin American programs for Wildlife Conservation Society. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're in any place, it doesn't matter whether you're in Chicago or whether you're in South America, people don't realize how much human beings mean to the environment. Uh, if human beings care about the environment, uh, the environment will find support. Uh, if they don't care about the environment, uh, it's a it's a taken for granted off to the side. And so I think my career changed and when I was in Latin America. I was running an international program, a, a specialist group for a group of very endangered birds, and they were endangered because people were eating them. And so, you know, you you try to develop programs that will engage people. And the more you engage people where they are, and start from where they are, uh, the more you can affect change in in conservation. And was really was it the discovery in that interest that propelled you forward in the kind of work you're doing? In other words, did your in- your enthusiasm for it, I guess, is what I want to say, grow because you saw the connections? I had an aha moment when I was sitting on a cliff overlooking a pristine uh, rainforest when I I was working with indigenous peoples to save their homelands. And and I had an aha moment looking out over that. I I was thinking to myself, how am I going to get this place protected? These, These indigenous people had pretty much no political power at that time. So how is this going to be protected? It can be declared, but who's going to protect it? And the aha moment was, I've got to fill, I've got to work to engage people, young professionals especially, who are looking for careers and conservation opportunities. And those people, I trained probably about 1,000, 1,500 of those, those young professionals after, that, after this aha moment. 
In Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, the programs expanded to Brazil and Argentina. And a lot of those people are right now running major parts of conservation action, whether it's in a a for-profit, a not-for-profit, or government in Latin America. We got them into master's and Ph.D. programs, and one of them, my predecessor here, Dr. George Rabb, was famously the head of the Species Survival Commission, the commission that oversees all animals that are endangered through specialist groups like the one I ran, which is how I met him. And um, he was the head of the Species Survival Commission when I met him. One of my Venezuelan students is now the head of the Species Survival Commission for the World Conservation Union. Hmm. There's others who have PhDs that are working in the U.S. There are others who have PhDs who are working in their own countries. Uh, Famously, we have a program in uh, Punta San Juan, which is down on the southern coast of of, uh, Peru, right next to the Nazca Lines, you know, that you can see from the air but not from the ground, uh, within a couple of hours of those. And uh, we've been operating that or working with that group since I was in uh, WCS in 1983 to now with CZS, Chicago Zoological Society, here to the present. Uh, those sorts of initiatives where you have a longitudinal project that does work in the field with local people in charge who then affect local policy in the, in the, in, in the, the coastal uh, reserves of, of Peru, uh, those are the sorts of things that really make a huge difference. And they've trained, I don't know how many young professionals uh, in that whole program that are now working in Peru and doing conservation. So with this moving you forward, you now come to Brookfield. Well, I had a, a, let me just give you two stops sure. in between. My mom got ill. My uncle had passed away. My grandparents' farm, we were turning into an Audubon Center on the eastern shore of Maryland. You know, the eastern shore is a little different than the western shore of Maryland. Uh, we were all Yankees <laughs> there, if you know what I mean. Anyway, um, I spent time there doing community-based conservation uh, that's actively, uh, still active. I'm the ma- largest donor other than my uncle and mother. And um, that gave me a sense of, you know, working in a community. Um, and then I went to, I was hired by National Audubon Society to run their Everglades program, which is a public policy program. But we used uh, conservation science. We used objective science and hired a bunch of scientists to change public policy, which was not too difficult uh, and we also reached out to every constituency in Florida, whether we joined the Chambers of Commerce, we worked with uh, inner city communities in Overtown, Liberty City, Little Haiti, Little Havana, uh, very diverse uh, groups in South Florida. And, you know, that bill passed 85 to 1 in the Senate and 312 to 2 in the House, the Everglades Conservation uh, Restoration Bill. And... You know, it was the power of all those constituencies together that made it happen. So fast forward to me coming here. If you're going to make changes in how people care about wildlife and nature, go to where the people are. So 
200 and something million people go to AZA accredited zoos every year, more than all other cultural institutions combined, more than all sporting events combined. So that's where the people are. And why are they there? Because people have an innate fascination with animals. In fact, when you're around animals, you release endorphins in your brain. So a few, have you ever had a dog? Uh, yes. Have you ever talked funny to your dog? Oh, of course. Now, the dog talks funny to you? It, of course. That's because of coevolution. You know, it, you're, you, if you were in a hunter-gatherer group like we evolved in, uh, you'd be better off with a dog as a watchdog or a hunting dog. And the dog would be better off with you because they got all the scraps, right? And so uh, that coevolution is is tar- it targets you know how what sort of person would would want to have a dog as a pet, and that's a person that's genetically sort of predisposed to caring about animals. So the issue of caring, of what people care for, not just care about but care for is one of the things in conservation psychology, which my predecessor, George Rabb, helped pioneer. And what got me to this place versus all the other places that were recruiting me down there um, in Florida uh, was that they sent me an annual report that had on the cover caring. And I was trying to figure out what this place was all about because there were no strategic plans. There was no master plan. What was it about? And then I read about conservation psychology and that issue of caring. We're trying to get people to care not just about animals but for animals, make it personal. That was really attractive to me because that's what we were doing. But we didn't have that magic thing, which is wildlife, that people could see. So you know that inner-city populations are defining every one of our national elections. You know that. Yes. And where do they get to see in inner cities in these urban, uh, highly urbanized areas, under-resourced communities, where do they get to see wildlife? It's at the zoo. So you ask, what was the change that got me here? The change that got me here was the opportunity to come up to Chicago. And in addition to growing our members to do outreach in communities, which I was doing in Florida anyway, outreach into communities who otherwise would not have the opportunity to see wildlife and nature. Well, I'm going to stop you right there for a second to remind everybody that you are listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore, and we're talking with Stuart Strahl. He's the retiring president and CEO of the Chicago Zoological Society. That's the organization that operates Brookfield Zoo on land owned by the Cook County Forest Preserve. We are recording this at the zoo, observing appropriate social distancing. And what you've really brought us to is what I wanted to talk about next, and what things you have been able to do here at the zoo to further that message, to to take advantage of that caring and to widen people's knowledge of this world. Well, there were a couple of programs here that had been started long before I got here. Uh, One of them was our program in communities, in in under-resourced communities, in public libraries. It was called Zoo Adventure Passport, and it, it got people, families, engaged, and the more they came, they got little stamps in their passport, and they could come to the zoo for free. 
I thought that was really cool. And then there was an Explorers Club for middle school, and and there was the Youth Conservation Corps, which was about 20 kids. And when I got here, there were about 20 kids, mostly from the western suburbs. Not a lot of diversity. Uh, and I thought, wow, well, these kids are probably coming to the zoo, grew up coming to the zoo. Uh, what about people who don't otherwise come to the zoo? How are we going to reach them? So we started with a number of uh, initiatives. Uh, one of them was free passes in every public library in the region. And that was a first step. But at that time, we had our admissions people say, oh, free passes, that, that cannibalizes the gate. Oh, and you want to grow memberships? Memberships cannibalize the gate. So we're not going to get money from the... And so I had, them, I had the, head of, uh, the head of the guest services sit down with the head of membership and say, I want to find out uh, how often members come to the zoo and what is their behavior. So they started giving them discounts at the shops, and then they started tracking the discounts at the shops, and they found out that, you know, we make more money on member families who come here on an average of five times a year than we do on the paid admission that comes on an average of 1.3 times a year. So, So pretty soon you had guest services selling memberships. And that's how we grew our membership from about 50,000 member families to about 110, 115,000 member families now. That's a group of people that's become more and more diverse because diversity has been, uh, it's sort of a, you know, I was the diversity when I was working in Latin America. Um, <laughs> and uh, and in the eastern shore of Maryland, you know the issues that are there uh, yes. that are getting better now. Um, but and in, in Miami, of course, again, I was the diversity uh, in Miami-Dade County. Uh, so, so the idea of how do you reach into communities and engage them and meet them where they are and start working with them in those areas to move then further and further out. So we started a number of projects, some with NSF grants. Uh, we started programs on the south side. We also started programming um, uh, with uh, teachers and teacher training initiatives. We're now a, t- a, a training hub for the Illinois State Science Teachers Association. Uh, but the most important things we did is we're starting to reach into, we, we started to reach into communities, find community-based organizations that we could work with, faith-based groups and others, and then start having programs that grow from the community and then here. And I think the uh, uh, and we've grew, grown the Zoo Adventure Passport dramatically. We've and diversified that. We've grown and diversified the Conservation Scholars Program. So now we have instead of 20 kids, mostly from the Western stub- suburbs, we have over 300 kids on average. 65 percent of whom are from inner city communities of color. 153 high schools, and 100 percent of them are going to college. And they're being very successful with their careers. They're graduating from Ivy League. They're graduating from state schools. And they have in them, they have been trained, and they have in them this concept about people and nature that is part of uh, their career path in many, many cases. Uh, I want to ask a, a little bit about that about and about how the zoos ha- have evolved. This zoo has evolved uh, you know, it's it's gone from being dis- animals on display 
to experiences with animals. It, uh, if I'm reading and seeing things right, it's more habitats, it's more immersive experiences. And, and how is that uh, playing out here? Well, here's, here's what, you know, what we know about from all of our research here at the zoo. Um, uh, people come here, and if they're having a good time with their family, they, they get a, it's a positive thing. If they're having a good time with their family and they're seeing animals, that's more positive. If they see animals that are in a perceived good welfare state, they have an increase, a dramatic increase in guest uh, satisfaction. Then if they talk to people, then if they talk to a keeper, and if they see an animal up close and personal, whether it's through a through a, 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 a acrylic uh, wall in our Great Bear Wilderness, or whether it's a program animal or an ambassador animal that comes either comes out to them here or goes into their community, uh, that is over the top. That is the highest score for opportunity to learn something new uh, comes from that close-up encounter with an animal and having a keeper or somebody explain that to them. Uh, So it's a learning process. We want people to go from caring about something, oh, that's nice, yeah, look, that's a giraffe, it's really cool, yeah, it's kind of nice, yeah, I think those guys are cool, to knowing what the, it's the fastest disappearing animal in Africa. It's being eaten to death, those species. We want them to understand that and know what they can do to help. About all of our animals, we want them to know what they can do to help those animals. And um, and so whether that happens here at the zoo or happens in communities, um, you know, for us, a lot of the work we're going to we're doing, which unfortunately is on hold right now, is that yeah. career ladder. We just got a very large grant from a generous uh, donor uh, or, or a generous family foundation uh, to have that that entire academy from preschool to early childhood to middle school to high school and then some internships uh, for those kids who have gone on to college. Uh, Oh. We're going to grow that dramatically in the future. And and I, I did want to ask about that. What What is the future for zoos like this? Because, I mean, let's face it, you do have some challenges. The zoo's attendance has been going down, and this is not just this zoo. Uh, zoos across the country have seen their attendance start to fall. What will be the next thing that zoos will and can do to uh, re-energize? Well, we've had a we've had a couple of down years, uh, but before that, for over ten years, we averaged over two point two million people. So last year, right at two million. The year before, about one point nine one. But that was uh, that was a year where we had we didn't have a special a really strong special exhibit. We had some terrible weather a couple of years yeah. ago. So um, uh, so our attendance, we've had fourteen of the top twenty five attendance years in our history. Uh, over the last 17 years, um, we, we've averaged, uh, we're still averaging the highest average uh, for any like period throughout the institution's history. So I don't think attendance is going down in zoos. I think we have, we have challenges because there are so many other places to go, right? right? So we've made this place a place where there's learning, a place where it's fun, and where lots of eight kids' ages and, and catering to those uh, millennials, of course, but also 
those multi-generational family groups now. Uh, so grandparents are coming out here with their grandkids, including my former CFO, who's cited all the time <laughs> out here. Uh, plus, we have uh, these millennial groups, and we have these summer nights initiatives and stuff in the summer, and roars and pours and whis- winter wine and whiskey for the for the elite or whatever. I, I would think the uh, the Hamill uh, family wild encounters. This is what you, what used to be the children's zoo. Uh, uh, yeah, it has yeah. been a real uh, that's been yeah. a real a that's been a real hit and the number one place that's probably the number two place uh, for members uh, member satisfaction we, we did these these studies where we uh, we do a lot of data stuff but we did these studies about what are the things that are are the principal components of why you want to go from a member to a family plus member Hamill family play zoo was the number one by far Mm. And dolphins, the dolphins uh, are also way up there. Uh, but that idea, the, the idea of uh, conservation psychology and how George uh, Rabb put that in place was you have a facilitated play behavior. Because when you're playing, you get endorphins in your head. When you're playing with animals, you have more endorphins going in your head. It's positive reinforcement, and everybody in the family feels good. And so that was the concept between around uh, Hamill Family Play Zoo. Uh, we're now doing that in communities, and we're doing it in Wild Encounters and a lot of other places. That's going to be the final word, and I wish we had another half hour because there's so much to talk about here. Uh, this is Stuart Strahl. He is the president and CEO of the Chicago Zoological Society. Thank you so much for spending this half hour with me. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMNewsRadio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcast on Radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 